0: Hey, everybody. Magnus here. Boy, been a while since I've done one of these, hasn't it? Look, the uh, episode that you're about to hear seems to me I should probably give you guys a little bit of context on this. Uh, basically, what happened was I recorded this episode and then quite promptly forgot about it. That—that That is what happened. It was the beginning of Last year, it was January of uh, 2018, and I just felt like talking about Star Trek 2009. So I talked about Star Trek 2009, and then I almost instantly forgot about how I talked about Star Trek 2009. So, look, I don't know. It's... It's very strange, but whatever happened, happened, and so I recorded the episode. I even went so far as to edit it, mix it, and all that fun stuff, and then quite completely forgot about it. That's what happened. So, started digging through my external hard drive uh, several weeks ago at this point, and fell sort of ass-backwards into this episode, and so now you guys get to hear it. Now, I talked about this a tiny little bit on the Facebook group, so if you missed out on that conversation, you should probably join the Facebook group, so that way when I post weird stuff like that, well, you'll have a better idea of what I'm talking about, but I I, I posted about this on the Facebook group, like, I don't really know what to do with this, like, what, what should I do with this, you know, and all that, and the... Basic consensus seemed to be, yeah, hell with it, just go ahead and release release the episode, so that's what I'm going to be doing now. It should be noted that I'm releasing this episode as an episode of trennis Magnus jabs reality, and the reason for that is because trennis Magnus punches reality is still on hiatus. It has not come back yet, probably won't be coming back for quite a while yet, so that's why. I've been releasing all these episodes of Trentus Magnus Jabs Reality lately, so that, that's sort of the, the big idea behind it. Now, I was talking to one of my listeners. Uh, this was uh, at this point several weeks ago. Basically, I met up with uh, one of my listeners, and we found ourselves in a conversation, and I was asked, why did I change the name of Trentus Magnus Punches Reality to Trentus Magnus Jabs Reality? Well, Maybe I've never come right out and said so, but what you guys need to understand is that Trennis Magnus Jabs Reality is the name of an infrequent podcast that I do. It's not necessarily about comics, movies, or TV shows. It's really just about whatever strikes my fancy. So I guess as an example, it was at this point, God, maybe like a year ago or something like that, I released a bunch of episodes about the Myers-Briggs Type Index and where I fit into that. You know what my my type is, and there's a sense in which you know that that whole MBTI thing is is sort of like uh, astrology for nerds, and I don't know if I completely agree with that, but it, at the same time, it's kind of hard to completely disagree with it as well. So whatever. But that's that's not really the point, though. The point is that trennis Magnus jabs reality as a as a going concern. It's supposed to be about just whatever strikes my fancy at any given moment that may not have anything to do with comics, movies, and TV shows. I mean, the mandate for Trinus Magnus punches reality is that it's a show that's about comics, movies, and TV shows. Whereas Trinus Magnus Jab's reality is not necessarily confined to those more specific types of parameters, right? So that's the idea. Anyway, so nothing, no names have been changed or anything like that. Trenis Magnus Jabs Reality is coming out on a, as I say, on an infrequent basis right now, while trennis Magnus Punches Reality is sort of in hibernation. So you may see some new episodes of trennis Magnus Jabs Reality at any given time. Don't hold your breath for any more episodes of trennis Magnus Punches Reality, at least not anytime soon. So... Hopefully that makes sense. Now, the big question to ask in all of this is why? Why am I releasing this episode right now? And the reason for that is <clears throat> I mean, to the degree that releasing an episode about Star Trek 2009 right now makes any sense at all, uh, it's because this probably won't be a relevant subject for very much longer. The m- my thinking and this isn't this isn't really, you know, based on anything, but my My assumption is that um, in six months time, or just whenever it is that Trinus Magnus punches reality comes back, you know, who knows when that might be, an episode about Star Trek 2009 just really won't be, I don't know, it's not going to be topical. I mean, and and like I say, I mean, there's an argument that it's not especially topical right now. Given the fact that apparently this franchise is DOA, for those of you who don't know, it looks like uh, Chris Pine and Chris uh, Chris Hemsworth both backed out of doing a a fourth Kelvin Timeline uh, Trek movie. And so that's basically, that was enough apparently to uh, kill that fourth movie and in the bargain kill this franchise. So, who knows? So, there's that. But the other thing is, you know, I've been kind of going on a little bit of a Star Trek uh, kick lately. I've been, I watched the, basically every episode of the first season that I had never watched before. And then after that, I watched the uh, great majority of the second season. I think everything except the last Two maybe three episodes of season two of Star Trek: The Original Series, and then after that, I kind of segued into uh, a, a kind of like a marathon of Star Trek: The Next Generation, and there was a brief little tangent in there where I made some time for some Tolkien stuff. Basically, I got together with some with some other guys and re-recorded a, an episode about something. Uh, Tolkien-related, specifically Lord of the Rings-related. My guess is you'll know it when you see it, but just something to keep an eye out for. I don't actually have a release date on that. I don't know when it's coming out. Nobody's really told me anything. I was basically told you know, what day and at what time I should be ready to go, but anything other than that, I have no idea. So, you know, there was a brief... As I say, a little brief little excursion into Middle Earth there. But then after that, it was right back to Star Trek. And specifically, Star Trek the, the Next Generation. And I don't know why, but sometimes in life, you just get lucky. You know? Sometimes in life, wherever it is that the fanboy muse is taking you, it can sometimes... It can sometimes, I guess, be relevant to current events that are going on in the geek world right now. And I think that watching a bunch of Star Trek The Next Generation episodes right now is actually kind of a timely thing to be doing given the fact that there's a a, a Picard series that's coming out pretty soon. And I'm not really sure if I'm going to watch that show or what. But what I do know is that re-watching these episodes of The Next Generation, it really did give me... it. I can't... See, I. it's tempting to say, it gave me a new, like, a fresh appreciation for Picard. No, it didn't, okay? It really didn't. It basically reminded me of everything about Picard that I've always loved to begin with. And... At first, I was kind of lukewarm on the idea of a, a of a Jean-Luc Picard show. Like, is this really something that we want to see... Because if you ask me, there's only one way to go with a Picard show, right? And that is, I don't want to say deconstruction, but basically a little bit of a critical eye on Picard, smart decisions that he's made, uh, personal foibles that he has... uh, uh, I'm trying to find a a way to not say humanizing him because I think he's actually a very human character, very well developed, very well thought out, very well fleshed out uh, character. But basically, when you watch a lot of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation episodes, Picard truly is incorruptible, you know? And maybe a new Picard show that's coming out right now is going to show... Picard being something other than incorruptible. And is that something that I really want to see right now? And I've just been kind of vacillating on that. No, I don't want to see. It. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, that could be kind of a... No, 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 I don't, I don't want to see. It. Well, you know what? Then again, maybe I maybe I do want to see it because, you know, just going back and forth on that. And as I say, not really, not really sure what to do here. But at the very least, you know, I can reaffirm my affection for Star Trek, the next generation. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing that the things that I love about the next generation are basically absent from the original series. And the things that I love about the original series are generally absent from the next generation. So I realize that they're supposed to take place in the same universe. And in theory, they should fit the, the continuity of these episodes should fit together pretty well. And so it should make it easy, one would think, to pick favorites and say, "Well, why is it that you like one of these better?" Well, actually, first it should be, it should allow you to pick one of these over the others in terms of uh, playing favorites and all that. And then on top of all of that, explain why it is that you have favorites and everything. But you know, intentionally or not, the the showrunners behind the next generation really did want to set it apart from the original series and did, you know, it, they really are different animals. And so the end result, I don't even know how fair this is to say, but I guess my way of sort of rationalizing it is the original series is a show about ideas featuring characters whereas The Next Generation is a show about characters featuring ideas. Does that make sense? So, I don't That's just the way that I rationalize it to myself anyway. So make of that whatever you want. Uh, and then finally, because this thing has really gone on a lot longer than I intended it to, but I'll wrap up my little introduction here by saying... Uh, people, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, there was a point there that I was really struggling with the state of these different franchises and not even so much just what's happening with them, which is always its own sort of touchy subject, but just the state of things as they were from, I would say about 2008 until, I uh, don't I should say... 2016, 2017, around there. Actually, you know, I guess we could go further back than that, maybe 2015, but you get the idea. Specifically, that when I was growing up, Star Trek was a TV show. Star Wars was a movie series. Now, yeah, there were Star Trek movies that would come out once in a while, but Star Trek was really a TV franchise. And yeah, there would be the occasional bit of Star Wars on TV, you know, things like uh, the Ewok movies or the uh, the droids cartoon or just whatever. But basically, that didn't change the fact that Star Wars was a movie series. But then you start getting into like the late 2000s and it's like up is down, black and white, black black is white, left is right. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's fucked up. Star Trek was a movie series, and Star Wars was a TV franchise. How the hell did this happen? You had Clone Wars on TV, and you had these Kelvin Timeline movies that were coming out. Like, what the fuck? And where we seem to be going right now with things like Picard, with Lower Decks, with Discovery is Star Trek basically returning to its television roots, this and, of course, the mothballing of the Kelvin Timeline movies. It seems like it's basically Star, uh, Star Trek going back to television, in some maybe not broadcast, because it seems like these are all on the CBS app, but you get the idea. Star Trek returning to its roots, in a weird kind of way. Whereas the Star Wars movies that are coming, no, I don't enjoy them very much. This I do affirm. But at the very least, I can approve of the fact that there are Star Wars movies that are coming out, and that's worth something to me, you know? So it seems like we're getting things a little bit more back to normal, where Star Wars is once again a movie franchise, and Star Trek is once again a TV franchise. To me, that's the natural state of things, you know? I mean, anything other than that, you're kind of going against nature a little bit, and... hate to say it, nature always wins. So just a little something something to be aware of there. So no, as I say, I'm still not big on these new Star Wars movies that are coming out. And frankly, I don't even really give a damn about Discovery. I don't care to watch that show. I mean, everything I've heard about it sounds like it's a lot of meh. Uh, Anyone who's listening to this right now, if you're watching Discovery and you're just loving it, hey, dude, more power to you. I hope you have the time of your life. I hope this show is everything that you want it to be, and then some. I'm just saying that there's been nothing about Discovery that sounds all that interesting to me. So make of that whatever you will. I've been a very happy and very content watching... Well, first of all, the uh, Star Trek, the original series, and then... Star Trek the Next Generation just firing up Netflix and making a nice big hot bowl of buttery popcorn and just enjoying the night you know I've really been digging that you know I've been really getting off on that. that to me is generally what I want from Star Trek and so Netflix is giving it to me in the form of these um, <clears throat> in the form of these I guess reruns for lack of a better way to put it And so everybody wins So anyway, I've rambled on here enough so hopefully you're still listening. Just uh, sit right back and enjoy the rest of the episode. to us, Magnus. Jabs. Reality. Presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But in the great majority of cases, my subject matter has been primarily comics. And the reason for that is because, you know, guys, you really need to understand that when it comes to anything geek-related or anything to do with fandom or collecting of this, that, and the other, really... For me, all roads lead to comics. You know, comics really are my first geek love. And so because of that, I think you could fairly well accuse *Trennis Magnus Punches reality, you know, as a podcast of being maybe a little bit too myopically focused on comics. And so what I wanted to do today was just switch gears a little bit and talk about something that, yeah, there are I guess comics somewhat, like, tangentially related to this. But the bigger issue, at least for me, is that what I want to do today is talk about Star Trek. And by that, I mean the film that was directed by J.J. Abrams and released in 2009. That's what I want to talk about today. And I would think that the reason for that is actually kind of obvious. I'm going through a little bit of a Star Trek sort of kick right now. And to me... A kind of neat way of sort of capitalizing on, on all of that, since I'm watching all of these Star Trek shows and reading all these Star Trek comics anyway. Why not find a way to incorporate this into my show, at least a little bit, and do a show or three about Star Trek, right? So, here we are. Now, when I heard that there was going to be a new Star Trek movie that was coming, I don't know why, but sometimes when people hear news of this or that that's coming soon and, you know, just something that uh, is making headlines and it's in the news and all that stuff, not necessarily everybody and not necessarily always, but at times you can sometimes, I don't know, it's like, you, <clears throat> it's like you can kind of read the tea leaves a little bit and and get a sense of where things are going in spite of the fact that you don't really know very much of anything. Right? And... In the case of Star Trek, or Trek 2009, which may be the easiest way to refer to it, at least for purposes of discussion here, when it comes to Star Trek, I, I heard that, look, I mean guys, let me actually, let me start at the real beginning and just say that, you know, the usual disclaimers apply here, all right? I'm not the biggest Star Trek fan in the room, I'm not the biggest Star Trek expert in the room, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff it was true before and remains true now. So certainly keeping up on Star Trek news is it's just never been something that I've been all that interested in doing, you know. So let me just set the table with that when I say that I didn't really hear anything about Trek 2009 until just about the time the movie was was basically in principal photography is what it really comes down to. What happened was, I was just having a sort of a passing conversation with my sister-in-law, and she said, oh, by the way, and that's how I found out about it. And it was in that same conversation that she said, not only is there a new Star Trek movie coming, but Zachary Quinto is going to play Spock. Now, I knew Zachary Quinto, like everybody else, I knew him from Heroes, right? And this is one of those casting decisions that, it doesn't really take a whole lot of imagination to see what this is really all about. You don't really need to be a casting director to see, yeah, this is good casting right here. Like, a lot of people, they needed to see Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker before they could really buy into it, but then once they saw it, they bought into it. Zachary Quinto playing playing Spock, n- less so. I just didn't need to see the movie to know, well, he's going to be pretty decent in the role, you know? <clears throat> an assertion that I will be revisiting momentarily but anyway at least in the here and now something about the way my sister-in-law told me all of this it just didn't cross my mind that this wasn't going to be some type of a reboot all right I don't know why but it's just I don't think that was officially announced or if it was I don't remember reading it anywhere officially right it this is just one of those things I was looking at this and I just thought you know, those of us who who liked Star Trek maybe more the way it was are going to get left out in the cold, at least somewhat, when it comes to this movie. And that is, that's a point of view that I really do stand by, all right? Whether anyone likes it or not, the Kelvin timeline is a reboot in in actual effect, if not necessarily stated intent, right? And Honestly, I mean, the one thing that I that I can say for J.J. Abrams is he didn't, even if he may not necessarily be the biggest Star Trek fan in the entire world, he was at least respectful enough to not want to steamroll everything that had come before, which is basically what a, a I guess, a complete, full-stop, scorched-earth, page-one reboot would do, you know? So he didn't want to do that exactly, but neither did he obviously neither did he want to work within the framework of you know the existing star trek universe and so he kind of compromised this by creating a new timeline nobody's ever said that the original timeline doesn't exist anymore that stuff still happened and the people who have made um shall we say a hobby of memorizing all this minutiae and all these details and whatnot About these characters, this universe, these organizations, these planets, these races, and all that stuff. All of that stuff is still relevant. It is still in existence, even now. We're just not doing new stuff with that anymore. And I kind of respect that, because the... Especially back in 2005, 2006, 2007, through there, when all this stuff was being decided upon. I don't know, it's just that had to be the first temptation, you know? The first temptation that, that uh, Paramount had to have, I would assume, is a full-scale reboot. And the fact that J.J. Abrams kind of, sort of gave him a reboot, but not really, I don't know. I, 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 I'm kind of impressed with that. So, anyway. Now, opening day comes, the movie, the movie starts, the movie continues, and the movie finishes. And coming out of the movie theater, guys, I gotta tell you, I didn't hate it, okay? I want to be very, very clear about that. And I don't hate it now. Even now, I still regard Trek 2009 as a pretty fun and adventurous, action-filled space romp, you know? And I guess from, like, a technical standpoint, I don't have, you know, tons and tons of criticisms of it. But at the same time, you know, guys, I'd seen enough... Uh, next-gen episodes and certainly enough original series episodes that I thought that, you know what, I may not be like the biggest Star Trek fan in the room, no question about that, but I still have a decent handle on the material, right? And if you watch an episode of the original series, like take Space Seed, for example, right? There's an idea that underlies Space Seed. Now, it's it, it's not like we have an you know, a two and a half hour long movie to go through all of the laborious detail about all the different ideas and whatnot that are at play in in Space Seed as an episode. but those ideas are nevertheless in play in the episode Space Seed, right? Same thing with this could actually be my favorite episode of the original series where No Man has Gone before. There's an idea that underlies all of that, you know? yeah, there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of fights and adventure and excitement and all that stuff. But when you peel everything else away, there's an idea at the core of where no man has gone before as an episode. Um, and here again, say it with me. There's an idea in this episode, balance of terror. There's an idea behind that, you know, and there are, if, if all you want to do is just view a balance of, uh, of terror as kind of a just a fun, sort of thriller type of episode of, um, of the of the original series. Then you know what? Hey, that option is available to you. But the the fact is, you know, you can draw some relatively straight lines between uh, uh, Balance of Terror and, say, the Cold War. You know, goings on with uh, the Cold War. This uh, this group. That our protagonists are fairly alienated from, they don't have a whole lot of contact with, they don't really have much to do with, you know, and all of that. There is an idea at the core of balance of terror, you know, and obviously I would not be the first one to really comment upon all of that. On and on and on and on, right? There's an idea in not necessarily every single episode of the original series, but I would say a good number of them. You know, there's a reason that the original series has the rep that it has. And I say all of that to say that Trek 2009, well, if there's an idea at the core of Trek 2009 as a film, I guess I just don't know what it is. You know, maybe I'm just somehow missing it. I don't know. What I do know is this, yeah, this this is definitely like, the some some would say, you know, the beginning of the nadir of Star Trek as a feature film franchise. But basically, guys, what I'm trying to say is, I didn't dislike this movie. Now, the fact that I kind of enjoyed it, that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily blind to the movie's flaws, or for that matter, that I even completely approve of the movie's existence in the first place, right? The fact that I 'm willing to sit through this movie and, and somewhat enjoy myself. That's hardly any kind of endorsement of this idea of in effect, if not in name, rebooting star Trek and that's kind of how I view these these movies. They are a reboot of what's come before. Now again, it's done I think in a in a very tasteful kind of way, but this has all of the practical effect of being a reboot and then as now, that just kind of bothers me. There was nothing wrong with Star Trek that couldn't be fixed by making a good TV show or fixed by by making a good feature film, you know? So on and so on and so on. You know, there's just... There's nothing wrong, really, with, with any of that. And nevertheless, this is what we were given, and so this is what we have to talk about today. So as it goes for uh, today, what I actually want to do is maybe not necessarily in like super laborious detail but i do want to go through the uh, the movie not necessarily as like an official commentary or anything like that but just basically go through it start to finish and just talk about again not in the format of like a screen specific audio commentary but just talk about it just sort of like piece by piece and we can well well we can take it from there so The Wikipedia synopsis is as follows. In the 23rd century, the Federation starship USS Kelvin is investigating a lightning storm in space. A Romulan ship, which is to say Narada, emerges from the storm and attacks Kelvin. Narada's first officer, Ayel demands that Kelvin's captain, um, I'm trying to pronounce this guy's name as best I can, Captain Robau, come aboard to negotiate a truce. Robau is questioned about the current star date and a, a quote-unquote, an ambassador, Spock, whom he does not recognize. Narada's commander, Nero, kills him and resumes attacking Kelvin. George Kirk, which is to say Kelvin's first officer, orders the ship's personnel, including his pregnant wife, Winona, to abandon ship while he pilots Kelvin on a collision course with Narada. Kirk sacrifices his life to ensure Winona's survival as she gives birth to her son, James T. Kirk. Now, watching this right now, this is this is kind of interesting in as much as almost from the first frame of the movie, you, or at least I, immediately got the, the sense that this is... This is definitely a reboot. We've never really seen a Star Trek movie that looks quite like this before. Now, bearing in mind that the last Star Trek movie before this one was Star Trek Nemesis in two thousand and two, you know that that I don't know. I, to me, that still that still means something, you know we had never quite seen a movie like uh, or a star trek movie quite li- quite like this one before you know with this kind of look and with these types of aesthetics generally speaking star trek in film and i would say even on television operated within a a specific type of visual language and that that really isn't the type of visual language that's that's at play in in uh, trek 2009 and a good example of what I mean is um, just uh, not just the lens flares. Because I mean, everybody talks about the lens flares. Yes, the lens flares can get kind of annoying. But seriously, guys, if that ruins the movie for you, then uh, I, I don't I don't know what to tell you. You know, I put in a, a, a different a different movie, I suppose. But one of the things though that I think actually works kind of well is that moment when the Narada comes out of the time warp and basically zoom it, it kind of looms above uh, uh the kelvin and the reason i kind of like that is the, the there's a very insectoid or spider-like or octopus or there's just i don't know some kind of just kind of creepy quality at play in the nerada that it's like it's about to physically eat the the kelvin which as it happens is not necessarily bad symbolism for for this particular camera shot you know you've got the sun whipping past in the background and then here comes narada and and it's basically poised right above kelvin and like i say it looks like it's about to just gobble it up and you know one of the things that i that i do kind of enjoy about this movie is that you know star trek i'm not i'm not trying to be i'm not trying to be you know disrespectful or anything but to me as I said earlier, you know, you take everything else away from Star Trek and Star Trek is about an idea. You know, there are ideas in The Next Generation. There are ideas in Voyager and in the show Enterprise, the original series, so on and so on, right? There are ideas going on there. And I don't think that they're necessarily spectacular by virtue of how amazing their their visuals are. They're spectacular for other reasons, but not so much for aesthetics and whatnot, And this is clearly an advantage that Trek 2009 has over other iterations of Star Trek. Now, whether you view that as a positive thing or not, I think it nevertheless remains true. Now, is an increase, or or at the very least, an improvement in uh, kind of neat-looking aesthetics and cool visuals and all that stuff, is that worth the price that we're paying for it? Well, I say no, but eye of the beholder, ultimately. So, anyway... Moving right along, this is this is one of those times when Star Trek addresses a a problem that I at least never had uh, with Star Trek, right? By which I mean the 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 gaps in in my knowledge of uh, of Star Trek, you know, the holes uh, in in my uh, expertise, I suppose, you know. I didn't necessarily when I first watched this movie I wasn't necessarily completely aware of the fact that you know what Kirk is supposed to grow up knowing his father the death of George Kirk here in uh, at the beginning of uh this movie is this is really the first major point of divergence that the Kelvin timeline has with the 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 regular timeline and You know, basically what that means when you trickle everything else down is that in the original timeline, George Kirk was basically, he he was basically James Kirk's inspiration for joining Starfleet. And so if you take George Kirk out of the equation, well, we know that that James Kirk is still going to join Starfleet, so now he's going to have to have a new inspiration for doing that. And so a seasoned Star Trek fan is... I mean, I don't know this to be true, but I would imagine that a seasoned Star Trek fan, somebody who's more uh, conversant with Star Trek than I am, was probably sitting in the theater on opening day for Trek two thousand nine, probably shitting bricks. Is the is probably the most I can figure. So anyway, so whatever happens, happens. Um, uh, Captain Robow dies, and it's basically up to uh, it's basically up to George Kirk to basically kamikaze the Kelvin into Narada in order to save uh, the ship's crew, right? And I don't know about really anyone else, but when you think about it, it is kind of a, kind of a ballsy thing to do, considering that there was a considerable backlash uh, against Star Trek Nemesis and all of that. Considering the backlash, it was a kind of ballsy thing to do to start your big Star Trek reboot, which is basically what this movie is, start your big Star Trek reboot movie with the same... Basically, it's the same action set piece that the last movie, Nemesis, ended with. Because in that movie, a ship crashed into another ship at the end of the movie. In this movie, it starts with a ship crashing into another ship. So I think it's kind of cheeky and also like I say, a little bit brave that, that Abrams, Abrams decided to do that, you know? So anyway, all of this is to say that the fullness of this wasn't necessarily apparent to me the first time that I saw this movie in theaters. And so, I don't know, put a pencil to it. And yes, that's the war playing the father of Jim Kirk. How cool is that? So, anyway, get back into uh, the uh, uh, Wikipedia uh, summary, though. It says, 17 years later, on the planet Vulcan, a young Spock is accepted into joining the Vulcan Science Academy. And realizing that the Academy views his human mother, Amanda, as a disadvantage, quote-unquote, he joins Starfleet instead. On Earth, Kirk becomes a reckless—actually, you know what, I think that's— I'm going to come back to that, actually, in just a minute. I think this is actually a pretty good place to to stop, to tell you the truth. Um, basically, when it comes to uh, Spock's acceptance into the Vulcan Science Academy, this is one of those things where, you know, guys, he, here again, the fullness of this wasn't really apparent to me when I first watched this movie. But, you know, since becoming, I don't know, you know, seeing more, more Star Trek ep- uh, episodes, watching more Star Trek movies, reading more Star Trek comics and all that stuff. You know, one of the things that is, that became more apparent is that Trek 2009 has a vast array of changes and whatnot. And not all of those can be attributed to the death of George Kirk. I mean, yeah, basically anything that, that uh, Kirk, uh, or I should say uh, Jim Kirk does in, in Trek 2009, pretty much all roads lead back to George Kirk and specifically his absence in, in Jim's life. And so anything that, that is a divergence or a departure or whatever else from what's come before historically with Captain Kirk, well, we can pretty well put it down to the death of his father rather than his father being there and always being an inspiration to him, right? Right. There are other things, though, that, that changed. And the thing is, what I've been told, I don't know this from any kind of direct, firsthand personal knowledge or anything, but my understanding, which could be completely mistaken, is this is a little bit of a revision. I don't know as I'd go so far as to say a retcon or anything like that, but there is a revision that's going on with, uh, a revision that's going on with, Spock and basically his history, right? So it's one thing for for Kirk to be shown uh, stealing um, stealing that Corvette at the beginning of the movie, and for some reason he's listening to the Beastie Boys, though nobody really seems to know why. And we can just put that down to Kirk being a, an adventurer, but an adventurer that isn't really tempered by the influence of of his father, right? So so there's that but when you start getting into the changes or at least the uh, apparent changes that are going on with with Spock you know what again what i've been told is this is this is different this is this has never been an element this has never been present in in Spock's um history before this movie right and yet here it is anyway so i don't know right I, is is this whole goings-on with uh, Spock being offended by the Science Academy being a bunch of bureaucratic just assholes? Maybe, maybe not, but I, I'm not the guy to say. But uh, nevertheless, that's just the the impression I've gotten from people who seem to know more, so take it as you will. The other thing, though, is to kind of circle back to uh, young Kirk stealing the car and all of that stuff, that cop that, that finds Kirk... Just a, just after he he drives the drives the car off a cliff, Thelma and well almost Thelma and Louise style. He definitely reminds at least me of the cops that we saw in THX eleven thirty eight. So there's really no deeper meaning to that. They just he just looks very much like that. And you know what? Maybe that's a pretty decent summary of of this entire movie. It looks cool, but I don't really know if it means too much of anything. So, anyway, there you go. To get back into the, 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 the summary, though, on Earth, Kirk becomes a reckless but intelligent young adult. Following a bar fight with Starfleet cadets uh, accompanying uh, Uhura, Kirk meets Captain Christopher Pike, who encourages him to enlist in uh, Starfleet Academy, where Kirk first meets and then befriends Dr. Leonard McCoy. So there's a lot of a lot of bullshit that's going on with that. And the you know, you get the idea that Kirk at the beginning of this movie, he's he needs direction. He's a good guy, don't get me wrong, but he needs somebody to smack him upside the head and tell him to get his act together. And, you know, in the original timeline, the guy that would have done that, or the guy that would have been doing that his entire life, would have been his father. But obviously, that's just not possible anymore. And so basically, we're left with a situation where, you know, Kirk, he's ridiculously smart, and he's obviously more than qualified to join up with Starfleet, but he doesn't have an example to live up to, or at least not necessarily one that he especially wants to live up to. And the character arc that Kirk seems to go through in this movie is, I don't want to go so far as to call it the same as Maverick's character arc in in Top Gun, but there are some similarities where Maverick does feel somewhat trapped in his father's shadow. And I think the same could be said of Kirk in Trek 2009, where on the one hand, he's very happy and proud of the life that his father lived, and the sacrifice that he made. But on the other hand, I mean, that's a hell of a lot for one man to live up to, you know? And as heroic as George Kirk might have been, it's not like uh, James Kirk wants to die. So is that the only way that he can really live up to his father's example? And, you know, there's just a whole lot of bullshit that's filtering around in, in Kirk's imagination. And finally, one day he meets uh captain pike and this may be the first time in this version of kirk's life that somebody's ever looked at him and saw his potential and encouraged him be- encouraged him to become more than he is you know and it's is it is it possible that pike is the first the first person to ever truly believe in jim kirk i think it might be and I think it kind of I think we're supposed to believe that it says a lot about Jim Kirk that he was willing to turn his life around after a chance encounter with with Pike. Now, the dark side to all of that is that you know we're basically asked to believe that one chance encounter, one brief encounter he had with some random asshole in a bar after he got his ass kicked, was enough for Kirk to turn on a dime and instantly turn his life around, you know maybe that would be enough i don't know but it just seems to me that that somebody like kirk would need to whatever his destiny is whatever life he's going to choose to lead he's going to need a fair amount of nurturing before he's before he really gets there one conversation is not enough to make him and it's not enough to break him you know and whatever i mean the story needs this to happen and so i just kind of i just kind of roll with it but this is I think one of one of the one of the the lasting flaws of this movie is that we're basically asked to believe that Kirk is going to make this big a, a change in his life when honestly he has no real reason to. Now, I think maybe a different way of handling this would have been for Kirk to be sort of mentored by Pike and you know, this isn't necessarily a, a connection or a, a relationship that Kirk would necessarily feel comfortable uh, bragging about in public. But yeah, deep down inside, he knows that he's got uh, at least one friend in, in high places. And Pike obviously sees a lot of potential in Kirk. And it's basically the way that I'm interpreting this movie is that after after Pike and Kirk... Uh, part ways um the day after the the bar fight when when uh, kirk hops on the uh, recruitment the recruitment shuttle that's the last time that that pike and kirk saw each other until that fateful day years later you know and they had no real interaction in between and i thought you know what if you know maybe we would have need to needed to we would have needed to cut out a uh, a couple of the space battles and whatnot. But, you know, what if instead of all the space battles and shit blowing up and all of that, what if we'd had a, you know, maybe just one or two scenes of Kirk making his way through the Academy and he's got I don't know, like an email or something from Pike with advice on how to do this, that, or the other, or, or, or just, you know, whatever it is that needs to be said, you know? And number one, you know, that would establish the fact that Pike is Kirk's mentor, but, it would, but it's also going to go a little bit further to explaining how certain things in the movie that we know must happen, in fact, do happen. And I think that overall would have been the better way to handle things, but what do I know? So anyway, three years later, Commander Spock accuses Kirk of cheating during the Kobayashi Maru simulation. Kirk argues that cheating was acceptable because the simulation was designed to be unbeatable. And actually, that's why I'm going to put the summary back on pause here and just say that, you know, obviously the Kobayashi Maru, just the entire concept of it, this is one of those uh, sort of famous and kind of big ticket items of the, I would say the entire Star Trek mythos and specifically, obviously, related to kirk's own mythos and the thing about it is and i could be wrong about this because you know guys again not not exactly like huge star trek expert here just a guy that likes watching star trek if in case that hasn't been made clear but to my understanding in the original timeline it was never actually like outright said what it was that Kirk did or how it was that he cheated on the Kobayashi Maru. And so if I've got this right, the the powers that were behind the camera with this movie, they basically had a fairly blank canvas to work with in terms of what exactly was it that Kirk did. I mean, we all knew what the Kobayashi Maru was because of Star Trek II, but specifically how did Kirk beat the system and basically the idea that Abrams uh, decided to run with was the idea that Kirk basically hacked hacked the the simulation is pretty much what what it's about and I guess I guess that's probably about as uh, as good an approach as any to tell you the truth but one of the things that I've always sort of found hard to believe is, that is basically that star i don't know that the academy would necessarily completely come down against kirk on this i mean look if you're cheating on a test that's one thing like a like a written exam that's one thing you know you're basically you're basically trying to find a way to undermine the system you know and i can understand where starfleet would they would have philosophical problems with that that makes sense But there is a degree to which, you know, Kirk kind of has a point here. You know, number one, this thing is designed to be unbeatable. And number two, I found a way to beat it, all right? Now, irrespective of whether or not Kirk's right, that there's no such thing as a no-win situation, isn't really the point. The point is, he found a way to beat the system. And ultimately, what, what maybe not necessarily the Kobayashi Maru simulation, but the broader point of the uh, of the Academy, is to teach cadets how to do the right thing at the right time to save the most number of lives. And basically, more broadly, get the job done. And what Kirk did was find a way to get the job done. So he didn't exactly abide by the terms set forth in the Kobayashi Maru simulation, that much is undeniable. But there's a broader principle that he was obeying within the context of Starfleet Academy. All right. And so I don't think that this is, this is something that the brass at, at the Academy should necessarily, this isn't something he he should get drummed out of the Academy over is basically what I'm saying. And we don't really know what would have happened because this is a movie and you got to move things along, but this is It's basically one of those, one of those times when I can't help thinking that, not that, again, because I want to be careful I always say this, not that, you know, the movie was going to necessarily like encourage cheating or some kind of stupid bullshit like that, but more, I guess more the point of Kirk had a solid argument here, you know, and there there is a sense in which he did sort of obey or I guess comply with, you know, the entire purpose of what Starfleet is supposed to be, you know, and there you go. I don't know. That's because it, it, what I'm, what I'm basically trying to do is find a way around saying, guys, it's okay to cheat because it's not okay to cheat. But you know, if you find yourself in command of a starship where you're responsible for hundreds, possibly thousands of lives, you know, of your crew and just whoever else happens to be on your ship at any given moment, if the only way to get the job done is basically to go outside the rule book, well, obviously that's Kirk's entire bread and butter. I mean, he's he's kind of made that into, you know, into his entire shtick. So that's fine. But there are circumstances, and this is the point. There are circumstances where you know what? Guys, you might have to go outside of uh, Starfleet protocol in order to to save lives or to achieve your mission or or accomplish your objective or just fucking whatever it is that you're doing, you know? And I think in case I haven't made it clear, I think this is something that the Academy uh, faculty and administrators, this is something that they would be mindful of. Now, this is something I would not expect Spock to be mindful of. And so the conflict that arises between – whoops, that could have sucked. The conflict that arises between Kirk and Spock here actually makes a lot of sense to me. You know, you've got Kirk, the – I don't even know how else to – the guy's just cocky, Right. He doesn't know as much as he thinks he does, and he's going up against, well, Spock, a kind of stuffy and uh, bureaucratic uh, bureaucratic, uh, instructor, you know? And it's very logical that the two of them would butt heads, but, you know, the events of, well, really, I would say either timeline, make it pretty easy to believe that these two would eventually become colleagues, peers, and ultimately friends. Easy to believe in, but at least to start, their conflict here is very believable. So, anyway, now as I say, all of this shit gets it ends up getting interrupted. Actually, I'm just going to read more of the Wikipedia summary here. The disciplinary hearing is interrupted by a distress signal from Vulcan. With the primary fleet out of range, the cadets are mobilized. McCoy and Kirk board Pike's ship, which is to say the Enterprise. Realizing that the lightning storm observed near Vulcan is similar to the one that occurred when he was born, Kirk breaks protocol to convince Pike that the distress signal is, in fact, a trap. I'm going to put this this all back on pause and say, this is really, you know, and it's kind of funny that it's happening, you know, at this point in the movie, because the last scene was the Kobayashi Maru, I guess, court-martial, or the disciplinary hearing, or whatever you want to call it, where Kirk and Spock were kind of at loggerheads with one another, and here we see, when they're on board the, the Enterprise on the bridge, this is like the, real, the first real partnership that, that Kirk and Spock end up making with each other. Uh, Spock does that kind of annoying thing that people do when they want you to shut up. Uh, he just tries talking over Kirk. And what Kirk eventually has to do is, first he has to persuade Uhura. Then he has to persuade Spock. Then he has to persuade Captain Pike. Each of these, they all need their own their own special approach. And it, it's kind of like a snowball effect. Convincing Uhura helps convince Spock. Convincing Spock helps convince Pike. And I kind of like that. Now, basically what we need to believe is that Starfleet would allow the Enterprise to be in a position where uh, it's staffed almost exclusively by cadets. I, fi- I at least find that very difficult to believe, but whatever. Story needs it to happen, so I go with it. Anyway, so Kirk's warning ends up uh, paying off, though, because uh, uh, the Enterprise basically comes out of warp uh, above Vulcan, and it's pretty much a graveyard out there. All this bullshit is uh, uh, just floating around in orbit above uh, Vulcan, Piece, just wreckage, pieces of whatever is left of Starfleet's well, fleet, and this has to be a, a, a pretty big validation of Kirk in Pike's eyes. So anyway, getting back into, and I'm going to, by the way, come back to that particular point in just a moment, but getting back into the Wikipedia summary, it says, Enterprise arrives to find the fleet destroyed and and Narada drilling into Vulcan's core. Narada attacks Enterprise and Pike surrenders, delegating command of the ship to Spock and promoting Kirk to... Fer- to first officer, I'm going to put the thing back on pause and say, before uh, during the disciplinary hearing, it was obvious that that Pike was pretty pretty pissed off at Kirk, no question about it. But Kirk basically just saved the entire fucking ship uh, because of Kirk's warning. Enterprise was able to come out of warp, weapons loaded, shields up, and that may have been the only thing that saved their lives. And because of that, it's not hard for me to imagine that Pike, he would promote uh, Kirk to, to first officer. Now, one of the things that's not really clear here, at least to me, is is Pike's surrender, which I interpret this as basically what happened, is that basically the same as like resignation? Like he is officially, as far as Starfleet is concerned, no longer the captain of the Enterprise? Is that is that how this works? Because, I mean, look, it's one thing to say, hey, Spock, you have the con, you know, uh, while I'm gone. But it's implied that when I come back, it's mine again. So that's fine. But that's not really what happens here. He goes to the trouble of specifying, hey, Spock, you're the captain. Hey, Kirk, you're first officer. And it just kind of makes, I mean, like this, it, this is kind of an important issue because this is basically how Kirk comes about becoming captain of the Enterprise, Right. And so, you know, it's tempting to say, well, this is just throwaway dialogue, didn't really mean all that much. No, that's not true. This does mean something, and the narrative doesn't really take the time to explain it. Now, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm really not a military guy, like pretty much at all. I don't really know a whole lot about the armed forces or uh, the chain of command or anything like that. Uh, You know, basically how all of those structures and institutions are supposed to work. I'm not the guy to ask. All right, but... I guess what I would have assumed is that notwithstanding the fact that uh, Pike is, you know, leaving the ship, and in fact, maybe sacrificing his life, that's not necessarily the same as resigning from Starfleet, or at least resigning his command of the Enterprise. So what gives with all of this? And unfortunately, the narrative just never really elaborates on that. So whatever. Anyway, to get back into the Wikipedia summary, though. Kirk, Hikaru Sulu, and Chief Engineer Olsen perform a uh, uh, perform a space jump onto the drilling platform. Olsen is killed, but Kirk and Sulu disable the uh, disa- disable the drill. I'm going to put the the summary back on pause here and say, you know, this is this again is one of those things that the movie needs for us to believe, but I kind of have trouble believing in. Right? I can believe that that Pike would send. Uh, Kirk, off on a mission like this. You know, you basically need to disable the drill. Do what you got to do. Take that thing out. All right. Yeah, I can buy that Pike would do that. That he'd send Kirk. I can also buy that he would uh, that that he would send Hikaru Sulu along uh, along for the ride. Pike asked for anyone who's had combat training. Sulu says he's had combat training, so he's the guy. The way I assume this is all supposed to work is. Basically Sulu would be Kirk's bodyguard. Clerk, uh, Kirk is going to plant and then detonate the explosives and Sulu's supposed to be there basically to uh make sure nobody fucks around with Kirk too much while he's planting and then detonating the the uh the explosives. So so far so good. Two two of these guys totally make sense to me why you'd want to send them. You know Kirk is a creative thinker. He obviously knows uh he knows how to handle himself in a crisis situation. That much is clear. So it makes sense to send Kirk and it makes sense to send Sulu. That's the point. But what I don't buy is that Pike would send a loose cannon like Olsen on a sensitive mission like this. I mean, this guy is like, I don't even know, like adrenaline junkie or something like that, but he waits until pretty much the last possible minute to pull. In fact, you could argue he waits beyond the last possible minute to pull his shoot. And so as a result, he ends up getting himself killed. And I don't think, it's not so much that I don't think that Pike would send somebody like that on a, on a dangerous mission like this. I don't believe that a guy like that could last very long in Starfleet. Because the last thing that you want in a situation like this, where you're flying around this, um, this technically complex, uh, basically it's a spaceship, and you're flying all over the fucking quadrant with it you know, all the possible things that might go wrong. And the last thing that you'd want is somebody who's unpredictable and unstable, especially as your chief fucking engineer. I mean, this is not the guy that... So, I don't know. And that's the other thing, actually. You know, like, what exactly was Olsen supposed to do? I mean, he goes down carrying the the explosives and the charges and whatnot, but what was his actual function there supposed to be? And it's not really clear. So, But the other thing is just, why would you want to send your chief engineer on a dangerous mission like this? Why would you want somebody as unstable and just fucked up as Olsen in Starfleet to begin with? I mean, there's just so many things here that don't make sense to me that, uh, I don't know, except for the fact that we know that Scotty's coming along sooner or later. And so there needs to be a place for him somewhere on on the Enterprise. And so I guess that makes sense. I'm just saying that there are elements of this that just... They don't really jive out with one another, I guess is the point. So anyway, whatever happens, happens. So getting into the Wikipedia summary, it says, Olsen is killed, but Kirk and Sulu disable the drill. Despite their efforts, Nero launches red matter into Vulcan's core, forming an artificial black hole that destroys Vulcan. Spock rescues rescues the High Council and his father, Sarek, but his mother, Amanda, dies. As Narada moves toward Earth, Nero tortures Pike to gain access to Earth's defense codes. Spock maroons Kirk on uh, Delta Vega after Kirk attempts mutiny. There, Kirk encounters an older Spock who explains that he and Nero are from 129 years in the future. In that future, Romulus was threatened by a supernova. Spock's attempts to use red matter to create an artificial black hole and consume the supernova failed, and Nero's family perished along with Romulus. Narada and Spock's vessel were both caught in the black hole, sending them backwards in time. And there, uh, Nero strands Spock on Delta Vega so that he can watch Vulcan's destruction. I'm going to put the the summary here back on pause and say this is the one element of the movie where you can honestly say this is not truly a reboot in the general sense of of the word. Now, I don't think it's inaccurate at all to call this a reboot because it's got the practical effect of being a reboot, but it's not officially a reboot of Star Trek. Technically, the original timeline still exists. And so it may seem like cold comfort to some people, certainly to me, but it is nevertheless true. But one of the things that I kind of like about this is Leonard Nimoy basically gives this movie a gravitas that I don't think it would have otherwise. I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from Chris Pine or Zachary Quinto or any of the other cast, but, you know, at the end of the day, if what you want is for this to be a de facto reboot, if not a de jour reboot, at least a de facto reboot, you need to have somebody from the original cast giving their imprimatur to what you're trying to do here. And since as far as wide audiences are concerned captain kirk died back in star trek generations it really makes the most sense to send leonard nimoy in there so that he can be the one to symbolically or even perhaps literally pass the torch from the old timeline to the kelvin timeline and so i kind of like that you know there's a there's just a profound sense of remorse that haunts pretty much every single scene that nimoy has in this movie and the thing about it is this actually ends up not com- not necessarily on purpose but it does bring up a comparison because it's kind of inevitable anyway a comparison between Nimoy and Quinto and the fact of the matter is guys you go back and watch those original series episodes and what you basically see is you know Spock he's on the bridge of the Enterprise and he's talking about sensors and all this stuff but underneath it all What I've always interpreted from Nimoy's performance in the original series, especially the original series, is that this is a guy who's, I don't want to say perturbed, but from his his own point of view, he's basically always having to be surrounded by and tolerate all of this. What to him seems like petty, juvenile, immature bullshit emotions and... I've always gotten the idea that it's it's just a little bit draining on Spock personally to be on the bridge of the Enterprise and having to to listen to his shipmates talk about this that and the other thing and and frequently in such alarmist terms you know oh my god we're all going to die blah 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 you know and it's I'm not trying to I'm basically I'm trying to find a way of not saying that Spock was perpetually annoyed for the the majority of the original series, because I don't know if that's really the right way to put it, but he definitely knew where he was. He knew he was in a toxically emotional environment, and he didn't really enjoy that, or he didn't ap- appreciate that, put it that way. And we don't really get that sense from Quinto quite as much. His Spock just seems kind of stuffy and uptight, but you never get the idea that He's that he's simply being around this just broad spectrum of emotions is kind of draining on him. That he's a little bit put upon for having to go through all of this. And that's I don't really mean that as a as a critique of Quinto's performance so much as a so much as commentary on the difference between his interpretation of Spock versus Leonard Nimoy's interpretation of Spock. And I wouldn't say that they're drastically different from each other, but they're not exactly interchangeable either. You know there are there are acting decisions that I think Quinto made that I don't believe Nimoy would have made, you know, and versus visa, you know? So what I'm saying, though, is that in the main, the emotional attachment that most Star Trek fans have, especially to Spock, is best personified, especially back in 2009, by Leonard Nimoy. And so I don't know. I mean, I understand, you know, like I say, that you need somebody from the original cast to give their imprimatur, But that basically introduces a dangerous element of comparing Nimoy to Quinto. And I don't think that that comparison always benefits Quinto, at least not necessarily. So whatever. It's all in how you look at it, I suppose. I just want to throw that out there. Excuse me while I get a drag off of my uh, vaporizer here. Alright, now to get back into uh, the uh, Wikipedia summary here, it says, Reaching a Starfleet outpost on Delta Vega, Kirk and the Elder Spock meet Montgomery Scott. With the Elder Spock's help, Scott devises a way for Kirk to beam onto Enterprise while it's traveling at warp speed. Following the elder Spock's advice, Kirk provokes uh, young Spock into attacking him, forcing Spock to recognize himself as emotionally compromised and thereby relinquish command to Kirk. And I'm going to put this, I'm going to put this back on pause here and say that, you know, this is one of those things where I kind of understood what, what, what was going on here. Like the first time I saw this movie, but this is one of those things where you kind of need to know a little bit about Star Trek in order to, to really get it, you know. And specifically, what it comes down to is, yeah, Kirk is trying to provoke Spock, but Spock's outburst here, basically him kicking Kirk's ass all across the bridge of the Enterprise, <clears throat> obviously that's uncharacteristic of Vulcans. But the issue here is that, you know, the idea of a Vulcan getting into like a fist fight, it's it, it just kind of foreign to their way of thinking. And if you're not uh, kind of a Star Trek expert or or at least if you're not really uh, conversant with Star Trek and what it's all about, you might not realize that the most rational way for Spock to handle any kind of a physical altercation is basically to do uh, the nerve pinch, right? Why waste time trading trading shots with somebody? when, if you just do the nerve pinch, they go down right away, and then that's the most efficient way of going, right? Why not do it that way? And so, for for Spock to start swinging with Kirk, like an emotional human, this is Spock basically losing his temper in a big bad way. And it also reminds us that Vulcans are that much stronger than humans. I mean, if it came down to it, yeah, Spock could could kill Kirk. And that's important to to understand because Romulans are basically genetic kissing cousins of, of Vulcans. And so when, you know, later on, people actually do have to fight Romulans and they get their asses kicked so badly, there's a reason for that. That's not just arbitrary movie drama. There's a reason that the Romulans are able to kick so much ass like that. So anyway, getting back into the summary, though, it says, after talking with Sarek, Spock decides to help Kirk. While Enterprise hides itself within the gl- the gas clouds of Titan, Kirk and Spock beam aboard Narada. Kirk fights with Nero and Ael, killing the latter and rescuing Pike, while Spock uses the Elder Spock's ship to destroy the drill. Spock leads Narada away from Earth and sets his ship to collide with Nero's ship. And I'm going to put this, this all back on... Actually, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that just yet. Continuing with the summary, it says Enterprise beams Kirk, Pike, and Spock aboard. The older Spock's ship and Narada collide, igniting the red matter. And so Kirk offers Nero help in escaping, but Nero refuses, prompting Kirk to give the order to fire, dooming Narada to be consumed in a black hole. I'm gonna put this that I'm gonna put this back on pause and say, this there is some obvious and maybe not so obvious fulfillment that's going on here. First, the movie began with George Kirk basically kamikazeing his ship into, into Narada, but to no real effect. Nothing was really gained by that except giving the Kelvins' crew an opportunity to make their escape. But other than that, not too much of anything really came out of George Kirk's sacrifice. Here we see kind of a repeat of that. Spock kamikaze's uh, older Spocks, ship into nerada the difference this time though is that this is the decisive uh blow that the good guys were looking to score against against nero and so the movie in a sense ends as it began the other thing though is that earlier in the movie pike said words to the effect of you know your father was captain of a uh, of a ship for 12 minutes and he saved however many hundreds of lives I challenge you to do better. Well, Kirk wasn't really the captain of the Enterprise for very long at all before he saved the entire fucking planet Earth. And so what we basically see here is it's kind of a dual sense of fulfillment. It's a repeat of George Kirk's uh, sacrifice in a way that really does defeat the bad guy. And it's also Kirk basically coming into his own, you know, and he's... Finally, more or less what he should be, based on what we know of Kirk from the original series and the original movies, and so the dual fulfillment here, I must say, it works for me. But when I say that this movie doesn't have like an idea that underlies it, I stand by that. Good writing. Well, this is basically what we're talking about here. This is good writing. The movie ends as it began. That's thematic fulfillment. Um, uh, uh Kirk. Initially refuses to join Starfleet, but then, in the crucial moment, he joins Starfleet. He is the captain of a, uh, of a, of a Federation ship, and he does outperform his father. So that's a good character arc. So we've got uh, thematic fulfillment and a character arc, but there's not, there's still not an idea that underlies what this movie is. It's still an, a whiz bang action fest, which again isn't good and it isn't bad. It's simply true. And it's not necessarily in keeping with what Star Trek has always been. Put a pencil to it. So the summary finishes up by saying Kirk is promoted to captain and given command of the Enterprise while Peak, uh, Peak, <laughs> Pike is promoted to rear admiral. I'm going to put this all back on pause and say, again, to complete Kirk's character arc, he has to become officially the captain of the Enterprise. But he's basically given the Enterprise straight out of the Academy, and I just... I struggle with that. You know, this is the flagship of all of Starfleet, you know, and you're going to give this to a fucking cadet? I don't think so. Now, it, it plays great for Kirk's character arc in this movie that he becomes captain of the Enterprise, but it doesn't make logical sense. And so I kind of struggle with that, you know, and ultimately I decide this is how it has to be. But just from the standpoint of kind of, you know, tweaking the mythos a little bit, Who says that Kirk has to be, apart from like just decent writing, I mean, like the rules of screenwriting and all that, who says that Kirk has to be captain of the Enterprise by the end of this movie? Who says that maybe Pike can't go on as the captain of the Enterprise and then Spock and Kirk serve under him for a couple of movies? Or maybe maybe Spock becomes captain of the Enterprise and Kirk is his first officer you know, and that kind of switches up the power dynamic a little bit between Spock and Kirk, but it doesn't necessarily shift their relationship, at least not too much, you know, and I think some kind of neat things could have been done with that. You always have the option of making Kirk the captain later on. You just don't necessarily have to do it right now. So I don't know, whatever. This is how things happen. So I guess we pretty much have to have to go with it. So anyway, The summary uh, concludes by saying Spock encounters his older self, who persuades his younger self to to continue serving in Starfleet, encouraging him to do for once what feels right instead of what seems logical. Spock remains in Starfleet, meaning the younger Spock, becoming the first officer under Kirk's command. Enterprise goes to warp as the elder Spock repeats the Where No Man Has Gone Before monologue. The end. So guys, as I say, this is, this is a, it's a fun movie. I enjoy it. There are elements of it that I think are honestly just very enjoyable. You know, uh, the cast, for example, you know, this is a very strong cast. I mean, at the time that they, that they did this movie, some of them were a little CW friendly, I guess, but you know, by and large, you know, this is, you know, I don't have, I don't have much of a complaint about the cast. And then there's the, the, the updating of the ship. You know, this is not the ship that we saw in the original series. And it kind of needs to be that way. I mean, if you were to recreate the bridge of the Enterprise exactly as it was in the original series, I don't know if that would look so good in modern-day feature film. I, it, that just seems kind of undeniable to me. So I understand the idea of... You know changing up the the aesthetics of the enterprise and all that so you know that stuff i'm 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 perfectly comfortable with but one of the things that does kind of you know bother me is like i say the lack of an idea here i mean i can i can forgive all of the lens flare and stuff yes it's a little bit overdone but basically it's it's Abrams basically just trying to give this movie a a unique and distinct visual identity that separates it from a lot of Star Trek stuff that's come before. And so, in relation to that, I I think I understand what he's going for here, and I'm fine with it. But you know, uh, I don't know. I can uh, I, when when people kind of you know gripe and complain about the overabundance of. Of lens flare, I can kind of understand where they're coming from. It is overdone. I don't mind the fact of it. It's more the quantity of it is I think what a lot of people kind of find a little annoying. So, in terms of, you know, I guess positive things, one of the things I like... You know, people gripe and complain about the fact that Nero, the villain of this, uh, of this movie, is... he's another guy who's out for revenge. But guys... You know, revenge, yeah, it's a little bit of a stock motivation for a lot of villains. But ultimately, the the motivations of a villain that wide audiences tend to identify with the best. The first is revenge. And the second, believe it or not, is a bizarre form of humanitarianism or idealism, perhaps. And those are really the you know the two best things that that wide audiences can can grapple with when it comes to their their cinematic villains you know a guy who's on a quest for revenge <clears throat> because this basically saves the storytellers the effort of having to uh, spend too much time developing the the villain and and maybe spending that time on world building or Uh, character development with the protagonists and whatnot. I mean, that stuff makes sense to me, and why people make such a big stink out of that, I don't know, but they do. So, anyway, whatever. Overall, I... I guess I enjoy this movie, but... The lack of of a real idea or message... Or theme or or just whatever ultimately I, I think that does kind of work to undermine the fact that yes this is a Star, War, uh, Star Wars this is a Star Trek story and it, it's well and good for you know for a movie even a Star Trek movie to have you know big loud and impressive action scenes and all of that but when you come right down to it as I've said, Star Trek is all about the idea. And unfortunately, there's just not uh, any kind of apparent idea going on in in this movie. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you this is the movie that made Star Trek cool. Because Star Trek, to whatever degree it ever was cool, it, I don't know if it needed to be made cool. It just needed maybe a new... Uh, 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 a new coat of paint put on it, you know? Maybe it just needed uh, a new set of eyes, uh, a new set of uh, creative sensibilities to tell these stories, you know? I don't think it needed to be turned into a fireworks display of of a movie. It just needed to be Star Trek, but maybe somebody else's, a different person's interpretation of Star Trek. And, I don't know. End of the day to whatever degree Star Trek was already cool, it didn't need to be made cooler. I like the original series and and those movies just the way they are. They don't need to be made cool. To me, I want Star Trek to be Star Trek, and there are limits to how Star Trek-ish this movie really comes off as, you know? So, anyway. Like I say, not a horrible movie, not great, and it certainly... I don't think it really deserves the rep that it had for a couple of years there, but it's not horrible it's just it's not it's not i don't think uh, a very good representation of what star trek is all about so and that i think is pretty much it for star trek 2009 so and as it happens i think that's pretty much also uh, pretty much it for me this week so bye everybody i will see you next week feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. and. Just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to 2TrueFreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trinus Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trenis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De Mansocor of Milan, Italy.